Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Raja Bell Freeman. Raja is a performance poet, artist, and musician living in Cleveland, Ohio. Her performances began making waves while she was in high school due to her poignant perspective and ability to give voice to societies underserved. Raja is a former lead teaching artist for 12 Literary Arts, a part-time teaching artist for Lake Erie, Inc., a board member of One South Euclid, and is currently assisting Ray McNeese in his poem for Cleveland Project. Her work has permeated Northern Ohio and beyond. Her performances have been featured by News 5 ABC, WKYC Studios, The Guardian, The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and more. Raja, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Could you please start us off with some poetry? Yeah. Um, before I start, though, you know what I just thought about? When I was in high school, the Ohio Poetry Association had a student contest. I think they said it's a yearly one. I don't, but I don't know if they still do it or like how long they were doing it or I don't know anything about it really. But um, I was um in second place, I think, in the love category in high school, twenty sixteen, something like that. And I just thought about that. I didn't realize. I, I didn't think about the fact that it was the same people. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, just I like just had that realization just now. It was like a poem that you like. It's a palindrome poem, which is probably the only reason I made it to second place. Because other than that, it's not that great. Um, but you can read it backwards. <laughs> I'm 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 intrigued, and it's probably better than you think. It's a little bit better than I think. Hold on, now I have to find it. Okay, because <laughs> that's not the poem I was going to start with. But then I, you like you said, Ohio Poetry Association. It just clicked with me. Hang on. <laughs> All right. Okay, I found it. Keep in mind, I was like 17, 16, maybe. How I feel about you. I love you. I can't even think of a single reason to say that we don't get along together. Because when we're apart, you still cherish me as a close friend. You could never think of betraying me. You will always be holding my hand. I don't want you to leave me alone. I need you. Now you read it from bottom to top. I need you to leave me alone. I don't want you holding my hand. You will always be betraying me. You could never think of me as a close friend. You still cherish when we're apart because we don't get along together. I can't think of a single reason to say that I love you. Mm. Yeah, that's way that's way more clever than I could have been at sixteen. Like that's, <laughs> I I have I wrote I wrote a couple of poems when I was sixteen, and I didn't write a lot in high school because it wasn't cool to write poetry as a guy, you know, whatever. I don't know, just just cultural hangups, whatever. But the ones that I did, I still have them, and they're terrible. So that's that's good. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to like put that out there. Because the Ohio Poetry Association, man, it's one of my first <laughs> first loves, first contest loves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the poem? I just had another poem pulled up, and then it disappeared. Obviously, because I pulled up a different one. <laughs> <laughs> Found it. Okay. Um, I wanted to start with these two poems because uh, they both have relevance for one reason or another in my life at this moment. First of all, they're both very different from the type of writing I usually do. This first one I also wrote as a teenager, um, but I'm currently involved in a project with the Cleveland Museum of Art, 
um, focusing on the American dream. So what they did is they had uh, community members and artists respond to pieces of art uh, that they felt in some way, shape, or form related to the American dream. And I had um, that Maryland Times 100 Andy Warhol uh, piece, just Marilyn Monroe's face, like a bunch of times. And I'm like, well, you know, a big part of the American dream is like striving for fame because fame is supposed to be some sort of promise of fortune and fortune is America. Um, so that was the the piece that I chose. And there's like a, at least they said there was this little, um, the, a little thing on the wall, a little plaque. I don't know how fancy it is. I haven't seen it, but it's got like my face on it and a description of like, this fits the American dream. And this is why I think so. Um, and they're going to have me do a poetry reading um, next to the piece, which is interesting because I did a poetry reading next to that piece when I was 19. So 18, I was 18. So I'm going to read that poem now, <laughs> the poem I wrote when I was 18. So we went from like 16 or 17, I'm not sure, to 18. And then we're going to go to 24. And, and in addition to the OPA, this is the second full circle thing you've had so far. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everything's just coming back to me. <laughs> so this is six things they never told Marilyn about the pedestal they placed her on. One, it's made of clouds. And once their arms got tired of her glory, they let her fall right through. Two, the path only gets narrower. Don't think you'll change on the way up. We've already decided who you are. If you want this pedestal, keep up this act, baby girl. Three, beauty doesn't wash off. Like a mud stain on a flowy white dress, attention stealing in the most inescapable way. Four, they hardly ever sell you real diamonds. The only real ones were the ones you wore and the fake ones like to wear you. Five, a woman's pedestal is almost always lower than a man's. Don't try to fix it. Six, even if we never see one of your movies, that face of yours just doesn't go away. Darling Marilyn, if you were still here, you might be so sick of your own dazzling diamond reflection. You might just vomit. Oh. <laughs> Man, I, 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 the lines... Uh don't don't try to fix it that's that's a good cut and so is um the fake ones wear you i, lo I love those two Thank um you. so so tell me about this project that you're doing what how does it you know who's putting it on and like what are they doing with it from from the, here on the cleveland museum of art and i don't know how much of a project it is if it's more of, of a less of a project and more of an event in my but like they've got uh different community members um i know that i was one they had like a couple other artists i want to say i i can't like say for certain who else was a part of it so i won't say um because i don't want to put a name out there and it's like wow and it's like wait no i'm wrong um but they had a few different people choose a piece of art um, and respond to it as to how it relates to the American dream, right? So that's that's the theme, mm -hmm. is just the American dream. So they they were like, come to the museum, look through everything, 
find something that relates to that theme in some way that you see and then tell us how. They actually, cool. instead of having us like write it down, they like interviewed us kind of like this and then they took our interview and turned it into a thing for us. And I was like, thank you, please. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Cause I tend to like ramble on, you know, and it was helpful that they were able to condense it for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's essentially it. I think the little the little um, placard thingies are going to be up next to whatever pieces of art people chose until like August, something like that. Okay. It's pretty cool. So they're like in the museum. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've always wondered, you know, when, when you're putting an event like that together, how you want to make a statement, you want it to be a socially conscious event. Because, you know, we were talking about before we started the, the Poets Against Racism reading that we did. And, you know, it's it was weird kind of as a, as a white guy to come in and, and try to talk about racism. Because I'm not sure that what I have to say is what people need to hear. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you think that should be approached? Like, and, and it doesn't have to be about like this per se or even environmentalism or, or whatever. Um, how, how What's the best way to get art from the artists to communities to make them engage with it. You mean specifically for things that are like socially uh, conscious things, yeah. like bringing awareness to a social issue? Yeah. I think the most important thing, and I'm glad you said environmentalism, I think the most important thing is to have like an expert on, on the subject, someone that has been dealing with the subject and has worked through it and knows something about it, right? So you say environmentalism and you bring in some sort of environmental expert. I don't know anything about environmentalism. So I would talk to somebody that does and say, hey, what should an event look like? You ever see like one of those, um, one of those like runs, like a marathon, like to raise money for uh, the environment or something like that. And they leave all those plastic cups behind afterwards because <laughs> they're drinking water the whole yeah. time. It's like that kind of thing that you want to avoid. And I think it's the same with um, something that's more related to identity um, or bigotry. I think it's like um, talk to the people that experience it, talk to the people that live in those identities about like, what they should and should not be seeing at your event. Because yeah. if you're not a part of it, if this isn't like something that you deal with every day, you can't put the event together yourself. That's just the truth. Or you can't put it together with a bunch of other people that have never been through this without some voices in the room. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And that can be that can be hard um, to like reach those people, to know how to get to those people, to be able to ask that question without it being um it can be at times a little <laughs> it can feel a little problematic to the person being asked at the time because <laughs> it's like a it's like it almost feels like a being a, a zoo animal at times depending on how you approach the question you know what i mean yeah oh absolutely yeah um like for instance i i wound up telling you know if i tell like a friend or a family that i have you know mental illness issues uh that changes the dynamic of the relationship sometimes sometimes suddenly 
they're like in interested but there's there's like a morbid curiosity that goes with it sometimes or there's like pity <laughs> and you see it you, you see it like on their and, and then they start asking questions you're like what's this what's this what's this and then like you know five six questions in and i'm not being asked to help out anybody in any way i'm just being grilled right and i think that sometimes when people are being asked to help out they end up being grilled like that um and i think it's that's what where the issue comes in with asking but if you know how to like ask in a way that separates your curiosity from the question which (laughs) doesn't sound like it makes any sense because questions are curiosity but if it like takes out like ooh, how do you do it like how do you live as this person how do you experience blah 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 you know what i mean like what's it like having to live in that skin of yours oh my goodness um what's it like to have your condition (laughs) (laughs) like it's it's i mean i don't know i see that though because if you think um i'm trying to think of a a a good example a good example might be like um it'll come to me it'll come to me keep going (laughs) um I lost my train of thought. Ah, oh, crap. I've derailed us both. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. You you said um, both at the beginning of the interview and before we started, you you had said this phase of your life, that, that you're you're in a spot now. What is that spot? Um, I think I'm in a place now where my poetry career is growing in a way I haven't really seen it do before. Um, I've got more people asking me to do shows, um, uh, more people telling me that my writing has noticeably grown since, um, I guess within the last couple of years. Um, and I'm at this place where it feels like something is coming, you know what I mean? Something big or something that's going to change things for me. And I don't know what it is. I don't know how soon it will be, but I, I, I think my life is going to be like different in a dramatic way in the next like five years there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of potential in my life right now yeah I I mean it it has got to be what's it like to have because you you realized success in high school you were with um Daniel Gray Kantar and he's I I met him because I went to see a performance that he that his high school students were putting on and his class was amazing. I don't remember what the event was. Um, it was public facing. So I think it was the end. Of, it was either like a Christmas or end of the year thing. Um, and I mean, he he was engaged. He was, what's it like studying with him? And what was it like having having a poetry career so early? Studying with Daniel is always just so interesting because like he's not afraid to like tell you what you need to do to be better and a lot of people won't do that you know they're not gonna like say hey if you don't do this people aren't going to listen to you you know and he was really good at that I was um I was a student in the fellowship when I was a senior in high school and then I was an intern and then I was an assistant teaching artist and by the time uh, 12 was about to shut down. I was a lead teaching artist. Um, and it was just like that growing through that chain 
and climbing that ladder with Daniel and like hearing how he would the difference in how he would speak about like the way that you know we, I was growing the way I was changing and the things that were good about it and the things that were maybe not so good about it sometimes it'd be a little bit more subtle you know like I would read a poem at an open mic and he'd be like hmm I like this new voice of yours better and I'm like <laughs> okay <laughs> I, I see I get it yeah um, <laughs> Yeah, and he he knew what he wanted. He was very dedicated to um, helping students grow. And it was kind of crazy, like the connections that I was able to make. I'll tell you a story. I was at um, I was at the bus stop and this guy comes up to me, a guy I've never met before. And he's like, what kind of art did you do you do? And I was like, I don't know how you know that I do art, but I'm a poet. And he's like, oh you must know Daniel Gray Contar. <laughs> <laughs> this man knows everybody. Who is, who is this? Like, I I feel like I, I couldn't possibly have the career that I have right now. I mean, I'd be able to have something, but I wouldn't be on this level that I'm at right now without having worked under Daniel for as long as I did. Because he just, he knows everybody. He knows, like, who you would fit in with. He is good at placing people in positions that work for them. And I think at, at a certain point, he realized that I was, you know, doing well as a poet. And I, I remember him saying, you're becoming a poet. So I think that's how, um, <laughs> I think that's how I realized that he was seeing that vision for me and helping me make connections uh, to be able to do that. Because um, a lot of people even still now um, I haven't done like a poetry reading for Daniel in a while, but a lot of people still now will be like, hey, you worked with Daniel, right? You know Daniel? <laughs> and then they'll be like, nice to meet you. And I'm like, great. <laughs> Teachers have those stories too, too, where they'll be, you know, they start teaching 30, 40 years and they start running into multiple generations of people that they taught just at the grocery store. And they start knowing everybody in the community because they taught a third of them. My my father-in-law just hit his 50 year mark and, and he teaches at, at a high school in Cleveland and he just, everywhere he goes, he, he sees former students. Which high school? Um, I should know this. Um, <laughs> I, I Saint, it, it's a, it's a Catholic high school. Is it St. Ignatius? I really should know this. <laughs> I'm not sure. He teaches he teaches uh, religion to seniors. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I don't remember it offhand, and I don't want to say and be wrong. <laughs> but like but, different, like teaching like a like a religion 101, like teaching different religions, or like. A... I think so. I think that's. I think that's how he described it to me. Is like he goes over different things, and then then it's a Catholic school, so they they do like text readings of the Bible and, and that. No. Um, okay, I don't really know what my dad does either. Sorry. <laughs> that's my father-in-law. I, 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 I know, I know about his senior project pretty well. He's explained that because whenever he's grading that, he goes into detail about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that's got to be pretty cool though, because with Daniel, then that means you went from a student to a peer, where you're discussing students. Was right. that? 
additional perspective helpful? It was because first, first of all, I would see students that like reminded me of my teenage self and I'd be talking to Daniel about them and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is how you deal with them. And I'm like, I had conversations like that with you. Wait, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it led to like these really weird, unexpected self-reflective moments because I wasn't, it's not that long ago that I was in high school. You know what I mean? That was 2017. It's 2023. I mean, it's a long time, but it's also, it's not. Yeah. And a, a lot of 24, how old am I? A lot of 24 year olds. Yeah, I'm 24. A lot of 24 year olds um, or people in their early to mid 20s don't realize how young they still are. Um, and it'll be crazy talking to like a, a 23 year old, you know, and it's like, and they're like, I'm so grown up. And I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> when it, when you're teaching at, um, but with, with 12 Literary Arts and Lake Erie Inc., are their programs structured different than a traditional high school? I imagine they must be. And what could high schools take from those? Um, we do go into high schools sometimes to well, both of both of them did. I think that part of the difference is that twelve was really dedicated to creating like the best poets they possibly could. You know what I mean? It wasn't like um, get students that were interested in poetry and get them to like start writing. It was like find students that have been writing and get them better. How can we fix, not fix, but how can we grow, make these people grow um, in their writing more while also making sure that they're building community together and that they have each other as like a, a network, a building, a network to build to like rely on and that kind of a thing. With Lake Erie Inc, it's um writing, it's usually more of an introductory level and writing as like a tool um, to be expressive. It's really less about learning how to work with the craft of writing or like the advanced parts of writing and more about like, this is how you use writing to express yourself, which is more like a, I'm starting it with writing and I don't know how to do it. And that's more of like a, everything is a poem type of a talk. You know what I mean? Cause mm -hmm. people, kids that are just starting out that don't know what they're doing with poetry you have to tell them like everything you do can become a poem every one of your experiences it doesn't have to sound a certain way and you know teaching kids that versus trying to teach them you know like the trying to teach them how to construct an extended metaphor in a way that will really take your audience through it or something like that you know what I mean yeah. The difference between teaching those two things is like it's big, but at the same time, it's not, you know? Yeah. They both come down to like anything can be a poem, a poem can sound any way. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, oh, hey, I remembered my example because you had said you had, <laughs> sorry, this is going back, but. <laughs> You had, you had mentioned that, you know, did it make sense to remove the curiosity in order to deliver a good message? And I, my example was, it's like if somebody goes to work with like a problem or the, maybe they're depressed or they have like bruising or something and a coworker comes up and asks you about it and you're like, well, I'd rather not talk about it. But then the coworker keeps asking where they keep going, hey, 
I, I, but I'm just trying to help you. And at a certain, once you get two or three asks in, it's not really about concern anymore about the concern about the person. At least it's about the morbid voyeuristic curiosity of the person asking, right? Like, is that, is that what you're trying to say? Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's like, I have to know whether you're comfortable with me knowing or not. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the information. Right. Exactly. And, and that's, yeah. Okay, cool. So I, I, I wanted to throw there. Um, would you can, I love listening to your poetry. Your poetry is so good and you, you're so good in front of a crowd. And, and I want to know, do you consider yourself more of a performing artist or a poet? Um, I think I'm kind of, I don't know. I think it might be kind of a 60, 40 poetry, 60 performing 40. I think that like performance is a big part. Like 40 is a pretty big chunk. You know what I mean? It's a big part, but like you see some other performance poets and like the way that they immerse their entire body into the things that they do. I just, I don't really do that. You know, I, I kind of get up there and I was like, I'm, I just kind of put passion behind my words and hope for the best. You know what I mean? Um, I do tend to focus on um, the the more I perform a poem, the more comfortable I get with it. Um, and the more I can start to focus on like, okay, how is this coming across when I do it like this? You know what I mean? But for the most part, the poem, it, it comes first. And some of my poems will probably never touch a stage because they just don't feel like they would adapt well and I think the fact that I have those is pointing to me being more of a poet than a performer but I'm a performance poet still but it's close but it's yeah. still mostly poem so you're 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 starting with your writing and then mm-hmm. you get to the editing and the editing is based on the performances you've had oh uh, yeah a lot of the time except like some of like some of my poems just um I don't want to edit them for performance. It just wouldn't work, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I have poems that I will never read and I just stay away from them because they won't come out well and I didn't write them for sound. I wrote them because I had like a gimmick or an idea or something that I was focusing on instead or form or whatever. Um, oh, yeah, I know we talked about, um, you said sometimes people during these interviews will like remember a poem and they'll be like, oh, I need to show you this to give you an example. I have poems that like have sort of a visual aspect and don't hit as hard if I read them out loud. Let me find, I've got this one. It's essentially like it's a blackout poem, but instead of it being, what? Instead of it being a blackout poem, it is the same line that I came up with, right? I started the, the line and then every time it repeats the same line repeats but i take out pieces of the same line does that make sense (laughs) i'm a little slow say that again (laughs) so i have a line of a poem yeah right and it repeats over and over again the whole poem is just that one line but every time it repeats i like black out some of it kind of like bingo but Yes. You remove the O, then you remove the G. I, I'm I'm oversimplifying it here. <laughs> um, but it's very much a visual poem. Um, it's a poem that is best when you are looking at it. I think I don't know, but like sometimes I do read it out loud, and it always feels like 
not that great just reading it out loud here i'll show you i'll read it to you okay because you have to be considering what it looks like on the page as you're hearing it yeah. which is why i have to give this description every time which takes away from the performance you get it yeah yeah the this caveat causing, yeah I'm, I'm fond of them <laughs> <laughs> this is called consider this your trigger warning when was the last time you saw a trigger warning before a black boy died in prose? When was the last time you saw a trigger warning for a black boy? When was the last time you saw a warning for a black boy? When was the last time you saw a black boy in prose? When was the last time you saw a black boy? When was the last time a black boy died? Was a trigger a black boy? He was a boy. He was prose. He died. We saw a black boy die. He was the last warning. When was the last time you saw a black rose? When was the last warning for a black boy? That's supposed to say war. When was the last war for a black boy? I don't know why it says warning, but you get it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's cool. And and. You, you okay so this is what i like about your poetry i like so much about your poetry you start with these ideas and they're usually pretty simple like you, you have like the red hat um poem where you start with um santa bringing you the red hat or the never have i ever poem which i absolutely love and like this one it starts off simple and then it escalates and then there's a point you know when when you say the black boy died that's the point that like that's like the ice water, right? And and like there are moments like your your poem about water. There's a moment, there's an ice water moment in the water poem where where it switches and the intensity comes on hard. So I want to know what is your writing process like? Like do you are you paying attention to the drama as you're writing it in? Um are you saving how do you know what information you want to save for later? Like what is what's going through your head when you're doing this? Um, first of all, I love the term ice water moment. That is awesome. Um, the term for a turning point in a poem, um, whether it be like in form or like in, um, what is that word? Topic. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes simple words, they just escape us. Um, or whatever. If there's like a point where like the first part of the poem is doing this and then it switches and now the rest of the poem is doing that, that is a volta. I'd be telling students that all the time. Um, <laughs> Write that down. That's a full time. Yep. But I feel like um, I feel like there is I think that part of like an artist's job is to take something that is relatable or understandable. Well, no, I, I said it backwards. Take something that is not quite relatable or understandable, something that somebody would not understand, um, something that somebody that hasn't been through your experience would never think about and make it relatable through something that they would have thought about. That's my goal. That's what I think about when I go into writing. So I'm trying to do it like, um, like an explanation type thing. So I kind of approach writing like an essay, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's how they turn out that way. It's almost like those beginning parts of the introductory paragraphs of like a basic five paragraph essay in high school. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Um, because that has been drilled into me for so long. Um, <laughs> Don't forget about your intro and conclusion and thesis statement. <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's how my poems end up being that way. Um, and I, I, that, I think that's also a part of the reason why so many of them like kind of go back to the beginning in the end, because it's like, oh, and here's the conclusion. You know what I mean? It, it came from academic writing in school. It's what that's that's what's so crazy about it. I approach it like I'm approaching a five paragraph essay for AP British Literature. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Do you have any favorite crafting tools? Like any like when it comes to you know imagery, metaphor, and that? Oh, I love metaphor. Oh, metaphor is my favorite. Um, I think that. What's that like? <laughs> what's it like that metaphor be my favorite i'm just i'm being cheesy and it and that's not that would that would be a simile anyway it wasn't a good <laughs> <laughs> i get it i didn't get it before <laughs> if you had to compare that experience to let's say an object which one <laughs> would it be <laughs> um i asked i ask students that all the time i do this thing and because metaphors are my favorite thing, I tend to focus on them in when I teach a lot. So like, what I'll do is I'll have like four random objects. Like in front of me, there's a, there's this mostly drunk coffee. There's a controller, there's a candle, and there's a dry erase marker, right? And I'll put four random objects in front of the kids. And I say, one of them's happiness, one of them's sadness, one of them's anger, and one of them's fear. Right. And then they say like, um, I think that the controller is happiness because I, I feel happy when I play video games. And then I write on the board, happiness is a controller that I play video games with. And they've just created a metaphor, right? So like after they've matched everything or they've given all these different answers and I write them all on the board with their explanations, I ask like, do you know what a metaphor is? And they're like, um, isn't it like um, when you say something isn't it like, um, isn't like, and they, they usually don't. Um, I, I notice a lot of them lately have no idea. And that's so interesting to me. It's like, why not? <laughs> why don't you? <laughs> they'll, they'll be like, isn't that when you say something like exaggerated? I'm like, no, um, that's not it. But then it's like, well, remember when we said happiness was a game controller? Is happiness really a game controller? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite like metaphor introduction exercise. It, you must get a lot of light bulbs with that because that's an excellent way of bringing it out on the laying out on the table. I think I do. They don't want to admit when they've had a light bulb moment. <laughs> <laughs> Kids don't want to admit stuff. And even if they do, they won't tell you how impactful it was. <laughs> right. They might not know. <laughs> they might have no idea. Yeah. What what's your favorite exercise that you do? With the, with that your, one that one right <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you're working with when you're working with students uh, what what does a light bulb moment with them look like like when they when they realize that they've written something successful um i think usually that happens when they decide that they will share with the class you know i'll be like pulling teeth up there like who wants to share come on somebody come up share i'll give you a hug do something read um and then they finally they do share and when they are reading it out loud they're like oh this is kind of 
you know what I mean? This is this is kind of good. I mean, it's maybe not the best poem they've ever heard, but they created it and it's not bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then like the rest of the class is looking at them like, oh, that's good. You know, and that's it's that's an awesome moment. And I think, I mean, I know like for me, I remember things like that, or I remembered something like that for a long time. Because I showed like a, a haiku I wrote to my third grade teacher and she like stopped the class. Everybody was writing a haiku, right? She stopped the class and she's like, everyone has to hear Raja's haiku right now. It's so good. I don't remember it, but it was about books. <laughs> it wasn't that good. Um, it was okay. It was great at the time. What's your earliest memory of poetry? What's the first time it like really grabbed you? I think it might have been the third grade thing I just said, but it also... There was a thing we did in the second grade where we had to like read a poem. We had it memorized. I'm thinking back, like, why did we do that? But we had memorized um, some poems. They weren't ours. We memorized them and we read them on stage. This one girl like dressed up as a banana for hers. I don't remember what that poem was about. But like, I remembered, I memorized mine uh, which a lot of kids didn't, even though they were supposed to. I memorized mine, and then I added, like, these simple hand gestures. Like, I said, hungry, and I patted my belly, or I said I was thinking, and I did, like, this, and my teacher didn't know I was going to do that. She's like, wow, you're a performer, and I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, teacher. I want a juice box. <laughs> that's, that's, cute. that's awesome. Um, Her daughter I went to school, with, went to high school with me. Crazy. Third or fourth circle back, I guess. <laughs> I kind of feel like there's two. I, I I don't know. For my, I don't want to. I'm not generalizing. For me, I felt like there were two moments. Like a first moment that I recognized, like the power of poetry. Like I heard a poem, where I was like, "Oh, that's really cool." I didn't know writing could do that. And then there was the moment where I was like, "Oh, maybe I could also do that." I wrote a poem in seventh grade and the teacher liked it. And it was just like that little bit of validation that stuck with me that made me keep trying. <laughs> and I would do it mostly on my lonesome, but it was it was just because of an offhanded comment that she made. And she's like, oh, that's pretty good, Jeremy. You know, and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why when I'm teaching, I try very hard not to be discouraging. And it can be hard not to be discouraging when the students are either um like disrespectful to your face in a way that's like I don't want to do this and like leave me alone yeah. um or when the students are just like heavily discouraged themselves and it's affecting how they're performing um yeah I try to like be uplifting as much as I can because I actually remember a moment where I, there was a kid who couldn't think of anything and I was like you sure you can't think of anything and I, I don't remember exactly what it was that I said but it, I could like see in his face he got like upset you know what I mean? And I was like, dang it, I just ruined that kid's poetry career. I just ruined it. I tore it up. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of what I kind of find that kid? <laughs> um you you said that your career is kind of like it is, and it's 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 excellent to watch from the from you know. And what are you working on now? What kind of what kind of projects you got going on? Um, I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question I'm really just trying to write as much as I can 
and create as much as I can and kind of see where it goes from there. Um, I also have an artist residency with Akron Soul Train. I don't know if you're familiar with Akron Soul Train, mm -mm. but it's a small art gallery in Akron that gives 12 residencies a year to different artists across like Northeast Ohio, I think. And then, you know, you get, you have like a community aspect to your project, which I'm still kind of figuring out. And then I've got um, some drawings I'm going to do, some drawings I'm going to finish that are that are different depending on like what color the lights are. So like if the lights are red, you see one thing and if the lights are blue, you see another thing. Cool. And that's like gonna be up in November. Yes. Awesome. I'm working on it. I always you see you. Like, too. What's that? You yes, you do. I was gonna say, because you I see you drawing constantly. Your your sketchbook is excellent. Um <laughs> how and you play the flute, right? I do. That's the one that I'm like the least good at. I I feel like those poetry and like visual art is like maybe just a little bit lower, but it's not that far off. And then like the flute is like a little further down. You know what I mean? Like I can play the flute. I'm not terrible, but I'm also just like not that good. Yeah. But I'm good. I, I can play the flute though. I was first chair in high school. I'm not terrible at it. That's awesome. So I, it's it's probably what you, what you're saying is like, you haven't hit the point where you feel comfortable enough to be creative with it and it makes stuff. Yeah. So I, yeah. I like drawing sometimes. I, I like drawing like comics and stuff for the kids or, or whatever. And, um, but I can't like make things like I wouldn't try to, cause I just, I just like doing it, I guess. <laughs> How do those merge together for you then? Like, do, do they, do they come together in your head? Do they, do they influence each other when you're, when you're performing or drawing? Um, I feel like this artist residency that I'm doing um, is like the first time that it really felt like my writing and my art were my visual art were like really coming together in a way that like was made sense and was impactful because like the poem I read earlier the trigger warning one and um, the art a part of what I'm doing is like lines of that poem are going to be there and then the lights are going to change it's going to be a different line but it's going to be in the same spot isn't that fun that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so uh, cool yeah i think that's like the first time because then there's like this visual images that kind of go along with that or at least that's the goal is what i'm hoping for um I'm, I'm like getting closer and closer to that deadline i have work to do on that but that's you know that's my vision and that's what they gave me the residency for and i'm like excited about it um because that's the first time that's really like come together in that way um yeah I, I I like to think that um my poetry has impacted my visual art in other times but this is the time where it's like yeah that they're very directly correlated you know they were putting the pie crust together and baked <laughs> at the <Yes>. same time <laughs> exactly <laughs> That's excellent. Um, and you're you're also working on the um, you're assisting Ray McNeese with the poem for Cleveland project. How's that going? I think it's going well. Um, we're putting the anthology together at this point, um, which is quite the process because we have to get like all these emails from people and all these poems they've sent us, and we have to compile them and put them in a good order. And some people send us like ten poems, and we asked for two. So we're like, how many of those do we put in? You know what I mean? 
um but yeah. it's overall it's been like a really fun interesting process and i wrote some poems in ray's workshops that i never would have written because um i think part of my growth as a writer is like being able to write in response to prompts and questions and it actually like be good i wasn't able to do that before people would ask me a question i'd be like i don't know <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I think now i'm able to like pull something meaningful even if i don't follow the prompt exactly i think i've Part of it is I've given myself that freedom to drift away from the prompt a little bit so that it's something that fits me. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think I've gotten some really good stuff out of it. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think when, with like a prompt, prompts to me, prompts to me remind, are, are similar to form in my head. I equate the two in the sense that they both give you constraints that you have to work under. And the creativity comes with working within those constraints and not allowing yourself to do whatever the heck you want. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's either being able to work within the constraints or being able to break the constraints in a way that is creative, um, in a way that's like kind of loophole-ish. Like, yes, I followed it, but like, also I didn't follow it. I'm kind of doing that second thing. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true creative. <laughs> <laughs> would you mind uh reading us another poem yeah well i mean no i mean i <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> um since we talked about the poem for cleveland project i'm gonna read a poem from one of ray's workshops it was um we showed up to one of the libraries i think it was the memorial nottingham library we showed up there the day of and there was a big business conference, right? So we walk in the door and we're like, hey, where's the workshop? And they're like, you mean the big business conference? And we're like, no, no. <laughs> they're like, well, we don't have a room for you because we're having a big business conference as libraries tend to do, you know? Yeah. Instead of having poetry workshops, they have big business conferences because it's a library, right? Their business must not be doing very well. Right. <laughs> So what we ended up doing, um, since they didn't have a room for us, we ended up just like going and sitting out by the lake, not far from there, and writing about the lake because it's a Cleveland project and Lake Erie is like a big part of, you know, Cleveland. Um, yeah. So this is the poem that I came up with. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the prompt was, if it was just like the lake. That might have been, but I can't remember exactly. And it does not have a title yet, so I'm sorry. I'm afraid of water and I can't swim. My friend wouldn't let me ride in her car while I was still soaked in the soul of Lake Erie, sopping wet and with no towel in sight. I sat outside the car and air dried in the heat of the sun. We found a dead fish and that's why we were leaving. Stank ass lake, I think one friend called it. I'm afraid of water and I can't swim. Most of the deaths I've imagined for myself involve a lake in my lungs, cool, calm, and glimmering. Imagine drowning because Lake Erie was selfish enough to want to breathe your air. The calmest water is still filled with dead things. I never wade deep into the grave. I'm afraid of water and I can't swim. I was waist deep in the lake holding perfectly still because the waves can't see you if you don't move. 
when I realized my phone was still in my pocket. If it had legs in its own voice, it would have been kicking and screaming. I don't know if water ever means well, the way it fills and swallows and buries a dead fish, a dead phone, a dead me someday. It could very well be a terrifying embrace, a broken symbol of unrequited love. The water screaming, just let me hold you. Me screaming back, I'm afraid of water and I can't swim. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And the voltum, which is a which is the term you taught me today, was the water in the lungs. I was like, because it it's got the funny moment right before it, where it's where you know she calls it a stinky stink ass lake or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it made me laugh, and then immediately I was like, ah, <laughs> drowning. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just laughing. Now <laughs> it was good. It yeah. was awesome. Ah. Okay, thank you. Uh, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. Raja, thank you for teaching me today and thank you for joining us. Of course, this was great.